Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Fourth Leg, a tabletop gaming podcast all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. I'm Hunter, and along with my normal hosts, Joe and Kelsey, we are joined today by somebody that you've heard mentioned on here before, Reno. Reno, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself? Hi, my name's Reno, as uh, Hunter's pointed out. I was not aware I was mentioned on this podcast before, so this is news to me. Oh, we have said nothing but scandalous and salacious things about you, I can only hope. Um, I am a uh, longtime uh, dungeon master, game master of various game systems. I've been playing RPGs in various forms for going on 21 years this year. I've played everything from 3rd edition Dungeons & Dragons, 2nd edition, jumped back, everything from uh, GURPS, uh, you name it, White Wolf Games, and uh, I'm happy to be here. I really am. I'm glad I got the invite, so thank you guys. Happy to have you. Well, we're very happy to have you. Absolutely Kelsey happy has to have uh, you. told us some very amazing things about you. <laughs> See, you're going to make me blush. <laughs> it's okay. It's an audio podcast. Blush all you want. No one, no one can judge. Alrighty. Well, today, we're going to be talking about balancing encounters without killing people. We're going to be going over our thoughts on it, how to do it, and then some tools that you can use in case things go awry. But first, we need to get into our fun fact for the week, don't we? We do. We do. So our fun fact for this week is going to be, in our opinions, the most overrated musician in general. Kelsey, I know that you had a pretty hot take that you've been keeping under wraps from us. Why don't you kick (laughs) us off? Yeah, so my pick for overrated musician this is probably gonna piss off a lot of people pardon my french but overrated musician taylor swift i will admit my taste in music is like very varied but like anytime that i hear taylor swift i'm just like i don't get the appeal is it because of the lyric choice because her beats are super super basic it could be because i'm a drummer Um, because I love playing drums and I am always interested in things with more interesting drum beats, but Taylor Swift is just, I don't get it. I don't get the hype. Yeah, I, I can agree with that. You know, I grew up through middle and high school with Taylor Swift's transition from country into pop. My sisters were really big fans of hers basically throughout her career to this point. And, uh. I, it never clicked with me. I used to work at Toys R Us. Uh, I worked at Toys R Us from 2006 to about 2013. And we always had, like, Taylor Swift playing and other things. And every time a Taylor Swift song came on... Granted, I worked in retail, so my soul was already dead. But I felt myself <laughs> die a little bit more inside every time I heard a Taylor Swift song. <laughs> So it was it was gradually a descent. I can imagine your life your life yeah. is just poppy as all hell with all those earworms. It makes you want to dive headfirst onto a railroad spike. It's just bad. Wow, that's extreme. I've never never felt that strongly about it. Now I'm now I gotta reconsider my uh, my pick. I'm sorry, is that too violent for our listeners? I, I don't know. <laughs> Unironically, I get down to high school musical music. <laughs> Unironically. I'm here for it. You know, I shouldn't be surprised. No, you just put it on. It's the start of something new while you're ringing, uh, reading Saint Anything. That's Okay, here's, here's my only opinion about High School Musical. 
people cannot give shit to the Kingdom Hearts franchise anymore for its ridiculous titles because there is a real live show called High School Musical, the movie, the musical. I think that's pretty much on par with like Kingdom Hearts 0.8, Birth by Sleep, the final chapter prologue. Oh, yeah. Is the entire title of the game. That is the entire Mm. title. And not even getting into a fragmentary passage, which is what you just said with a fragmentary (laughs) passage attached to the end of it. I love Kingdom Hearts, but Tetsuya Nomura, the, the titles, the titles... Well, it's like titles with anime nowadays. Mm-hmm. You, you, you have, you know, uh, is it wrong to date girls in a dungeon? That's the exact one that I was thinking of. That time I got reincarnated as a slime. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the yeah. titles get longer and longer. It's like, what what happened to just, like, Bleach? Or, <laughs> you know, just simple one-word one, <laughs> one word titles. I, I'm sorry, we're, yeah. we're digressing, but that's... It falls in that line, like, hey, let's make the longest, most ostentatious title we can and just drive everyone nuts with it to be fair 99 percent of this podcast is digressions awesome i'm going to fit in so well (laughs) you already are yes you are welcome home all right joe your most overrated musician oh man uh so i want to say it was like two years ago uh camilla cabello came out with havana and i just it's not for me it's very like almost nasally it, like hits my ears it's like makes mm-hmm. me cringe a little bit like anytime i'm just yeah it's not for me guys i'm sorry i'm sure she's a lovely lady who has a lot going on in her life but uh her music is uh one of the things that i wish wasn't in her life at the moment i've not i don't <laughs> think i've heard this song so i don't uh, think i'm missing anything i'll i'll get you uh we'll get you off air don't worry no worries i thought you were about to start singing joe and i was very no. excited oh <laughs> no I, I didn't I didn't want to make Joe upset. I I was humming it in my head. No, you're and fine. I was like, I'll mm. let it go. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna throw it out. Oh, speaking of overrated songs, <laughs> I let it go. Yeah. Okay, so you ever hear like a song, like a, a lyric from a song, and then you just feel like you have to hum a lyric or say mm-hmm. it? That keeps me up at night. I found a kindred spirit. <laughs> Oh no, is the Havana music video going to go into our Patreon exclusive movie watching podcast? I, I can. Uh, Five ninety nine a month subscribers and up are going to get access to that, that podcast, <laughs> apparently. I love that we keep like talking <laughs> about Patreon exclusives even though we don't have a page. <laughs> Not yet. Hey, if there's enough public outcry for it, we'll get on that. People are going to beg to give us their money. <laughs> We could always we could always start an OnlyFans and then just watch stuff that they want us to watch. <laughs> the most boring OnlyFans ever. I don't think that's what they want to want you to put on OnlyFans. I I could be wrong. Uh, okay, I'll watch the music video and I'll put like bunny slippers on. Whatever they want, I'm here to please. French maid dresses all around. Uh, but my most overrated band, and I'm I'm gonna kind of mess with some of the hardcore rap community with this one but i definitely think kanye west is incredibly overrated as a musician like i think he's a really talented producer but as a rapper i think he is grossly overrated i i agree i don't know if y'all listen to kanye west too much i think as a person he's overrated i think he's pretentious Mm -hmm. now i'm not i'm not gonna dispute anyone's talent you can be a talented person and be garbage at other things or a garbage human yeah, or garbage human, or yeah. Garbage or garbage human. human. So it's like you can have talent and still be garbage as a person. And 
Kanye, mm-hmm. like you said, as a, as a producer, he's he's really good, but he needs to stay out of his own business, and I think he would yeah. succeed yeah. more. Does that make sense? I don't know if it mm-hmm. makes sense. Yeah, that it, it makes no, sense I agree. if he like has that business to like somebody else. All right. Well, fun facts out of the way, and half of our audience officially alienated. Yes. Let's go ahead and get into today's topic, which I think I mentioned it earlier, is going to be balancing encounters without killing your people. Now, this is going to be different no matter what system you go into, so we're going to try to cast a wide net with this one, but please forgive any system specificity that we get into. Reno, I'm going to ask you to start us off. How do you go about balancing encounters social or combat in games that you run to to start i i would like to say that i don't balance my encounters but in in fact i do i've I've self-trained myself from earlier editions of the game and this can be a broad spectrum i use the term goblin gang so goblin gang is when you have however many players at the table say we've got four players at our table and there are minions like minion creatures goblins again for example I always like to throw out two of whatever creature it is per player, just to see if it's a challenge. Because with Goblin Gang rules, you could always throw out more goblins. If it seems too easy, you could throw out more. If it seems too hard, Mm -hmm. you can take away. And it it works universally through most systems, any D20 systems that you use. But that's if you're working with minions. If we're talking stronger creatures... Like a dragon. Let's use a dragon, for example. It's a canonical example that most people can relate to regardless of what game you're playing. The best thing you can do to balance your encounters, and it's more its more of like a, a prop or an in-person thing, you have a dungeon master screen, and you have DM fiat. I'm sure you guys have fudged dice rolls. I know most people don't, mm-hmm. don't choose to fudge dice rolls. Kelsey's played with me when we played in person, and I rolled my dice in front of my players, so I couldn't fudge my dice rolls. So balance came from knowing what your group was comprised of. My advice to, to new game masters, regardless of what system you're running, know what your players are playing. If you know that uh, you've got no healer, make the combat interesting with like interesting things that the, the monsters might do, like maybe outside of the scope of what they might do, but don't blanket beat your players like don't target the the spellcaster don't target the the tank you know give each give each character something that they can they can strive towards and i don't know if i'm kind of going off the rails here but i mean when i balance my own encounters i take any monster that i want to run like goblins for example you're encountering a a mob of goblins four players that's going to be 16 goblins if they decide to, to beat them all down, they beat them all down. Well, no, I did, I did my math wrong. That's eight goblins. So now I've thrown out too many goblins. <laughs> A good example. I've thrown out too many goblins because I can't math. So now the party is, is getting beaten down. The goblins can run away. And if mm-hmm. they can take prisoners or anything like that. But if we're, if we're looking at balancing the encounter, like truly balancing it, hit points, something that you could take from the very rarely spoken of fourth edition Dungeons and Dragons is minion rules. And there there are some keen things that I think a lot of people can look at by historically digging that out of the, out of its own RPG grave is minion monsters. They have the same stats as a normal monster, 
the not necessarily the same hit points. They have one hit point. So if the party hits them, they go down. So that you have a more cinematic experience with that monster. You know, you could have a battle of Helm's Deep and you fight 40 orcs, but all the orcs have one hit point. But you have to hit that orc to take him down. So it comes with weighing what you think your party can handle. Yeah, they were like those action movie mooks, the guys in suits. Like, you just hit as many as you can, knock them down. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, watch Die Hard and you'll understand minion rules. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) So I I like to run my games like movies or miniseries. And, you know, your characters, your players, are meant to be the heroes of the story. I get into very heated arguments with other dungeon masters that I play with that are like, well, you make your games too much like this. I'm like, no, I I want my players to think that they're important. So when I describe things, you know, the camera pans out and you see this or you see that. And sometimes I'll describe the monsters coming up over the hill before the players even see them. And then Mm -hmm. they get that opportunity to be like, all right, we're going to be fighting goblins. Let's get get ready. Let's go. That's that's just where I fall on it. Yeah, you and I are on the same page there, my dude. We had a discussion about the purpose of a game master uh, in our first episode and you know the players being the hero of the story is something that we talked about at length and tailoring the game for the players to be heroic is something that personally I believe every dungeon master should do unless you come together beforehand and state otherwise so if it's going to be like a classic D&D GM versus player kind of game maybe it's more about the conflict there than it is about the heroism of the players. But by and large, in your more casual D&D games that a lot of people play, or your more casual uh, you know, Genesis or PBTA games, the goal should be to make the players feel heroic, not to make the GM feel powerful, right? Because the GM's going to be powerful no matter what. Yeah, so I believe that the GM is... I don't see them as the the omnipotent god figure that looms over this world. I always see them as the storyteller. You know, I don't like the the GM versus player dynamic that a lot of people have when players are like, "Well, I need to beat the DM," or the DM's like, "Well, I need to beat my players." It's like, no, I as a DM need to challenge my players, and my players need to challenge me. If they, if if that's not happening, then nobody's going to have a good time. I've rolled out of games where my players have taken it upon themselves to just derail everything I did on purpose. And you feel like you suck. You feel like you really Mm -hmm. suck afterwards. And then if you do that same thing as a DM to your players, then they feel like they suck. Man, uh, that TPK was rough. Yeah, it was because I felt vindictive. And I wanted to, to wreck you. You know, that's not how a DM should be. A game master should not be no. that way. If you believe that your job is to, you know, break your characters down, to break your players down, then I'm sorry, you need to find a new line of work because that is not what the game is meant for. That is not what any role-playing game is meant for. In my opinion. In my opinion. It's uh, it's the same as, like, somebody who doesn't take the take the bait in improv. Like... You're not giving anybody else anything to work with if you're just like, nope, not there, nope, or I'm not interested in that. Like, hey, like there are things that are set into motion, whether this ties into your backstory or somebody else's, you know, on the GM side or vice versa. If you're like, oh, well, I know you gave me a page and a half backstory, but there's really nothing in there I can work with. So tough luck, kid. Yeah, with with improv, it should be the yes and rule. Mm-hmm. 
So, player gives you something. I'll use Kelsey. Can I use Ollie for an example? Please do. Okay, so our in-person game when uh, we played in this West Marches style game, uh, Kelsey came to me and dropped off, like, a load of half-orcs. She's like, these are my people. They're here to, to live in this land. And I was like, all right, cool. Let's find a place for them. And it was a yes and moment. It was a small frontier world. And now I've got, what was it, 50, 50 half-orcs? I think 75. Because we just rolled a percentile dice and we went with the first number that came up. Yeah. So we had all of these characters. And now I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to incorporate them. And then even when Kelsey wasn't there playing Ollie... I had players that are like, "Well, I want to go talk to the half orcs." All right, and now now they're part of the world. They are they are a systemic part of the world, and it was all because of something that had just got dropped in front of me. I had no idea that Kelsey was bringing all of that. I thought Kelsey's going to bring her character. We're going to get them set up, and yep. here we are. Yep. And also, I brought I brought forward the idea of um, half orcs talking like chilled out beach dudes, man. Because, like, I'm so done with half-orcs talking in, like, a Cockney accent. Why can't they just vibe, man? So I brought that forward, and I'm so glad that I did. (laughs) Whenever I have orcs in my game, I just do my best Sam Elliott sans accent. Mm -hmm. So rather than, you know, dropping your voice down here and talking like you're from the South, it turns into, well, hello, everybody. My name is Half-Orc McGee. It's a deep voice. Yeah, just a deep kind of gravelly. It hurts my throat, so there aren't too many uh, orcs in my game, but that's a that's just a personal limitation thing. But I I really like that line of discussion of working with your players and, and using the yes and rule, uh, which we're, we've talked about before. We're going to talk about it again. Bouncing off of your players' ideas and then the players bouncing off of what the GM gives them back is one of the most important things in role-playing. It's that dynamic between creator and interactor. And that goes into balancing your encounters too, because if you know how your players are going to interact with your encounter, then you can plan it a little bit better. My players are not the most interactive when it comes to puzzles, right? So if I have a really, really complicated puzzle encounter for them to come at, there's only really one player who engages in that in a meaningful way. So I try to keep my puzzles simple. You know, there is one thing, once you do it, you've solved the puzzle, congratulations. And it keeps everybody kind of on pace with what's going on in the game. Because that's the way that my table works, right? Or my virtual table. You get that one guy who plays the Uncharted series, everybody else right out. Literally, it's actually uh, Nick, our guest from episode three. He's in that game and he loves interacting with complex puzzles, but everybody else at the table is like, I don't really get it and I'm not really good at making complex puzzles. So we just try to keep it simple and keep it, you know, one stage interactivity for everybody to get into and enjoy. So knowing your table and knowing how to bounce off of one another is a really big part of balancing, especially social encounters. Uh, Combat's a little bit different, and if everybody's okay with it, I'll get into my thoughts on combat encounters. Go for for it. it. With combat encounters, I think a lot of it has to go by feel and knowing your system. I don't think there's any better way to learn how to balance combat in any given system than just throwing combats at your players and seeing how it works and tweaking from there. I'll pick on D&D 5e, and it's 
challenge rating system, which is not a very <laughs> accurate challenge rating system. No, it is not. Like, that is the system that I work with, and it is not great in terms of calculating challenge. Listen, challenge rating it's through any sweet. system from 3rd edition on, it has always been broken. It is not, it is not a good thing to go off of. It's not fantastic, uh, and I think one of the big reasons for that is because D&D 5e balances its combat around the monster's strength and not the player's abilities, which I totally get because it's almost impossible to balance for such an amorphous group as the players when they can be a team of all bards called the A-Men. You know, D&D 5e can't balance its, you know, monsters for whatever group is coming its way so it's just like okay we're gonna assign arbitrary numbers to offense and arbitrary numbers to defense and we'll you know do one through 30 and 30 is the best and one is the worst and hey you know that's how we balance encounters but it is deceptive for newer gms because they're like i can trust this and i fell into this trap too they're like i can trust this cr calculation and then they're like okay so a challenge rating two is going to be a deadly encounter for a party of you know five level ones so i'll just throw a challenge rating two at them and i'll scale it down a little bit and then you get into the combat and because it's only one creature against five players they die in like two rounds and you don't get to do anything cool with them. So don't trust challenge ratings, necessarily. They're a good starting point. They're a good guide. But they're not going to do the work for you. Yeah. If mm -hmm. I can add an addendum to that, uh, keep in mind the creatures that you want to bring into the combat and what your player's abilities are. Because there was one time mm -hmm. that I had set up a scenario where they were going through, where my players were going through a dungeon and they came across a displacer beast. And I did not realize that the resident cleric had a banishment. And yep. <laughs> so the combat was over in like six seconds because the displacer beast got sent back to its original plane and boom, scenario over. And I was like, ah, man. Like, I'm glad that, that that my players threw that at me, but yeah, I, I was really looking forward to the combat with the Displacer Beast. Yeah, Displacer Beasts are fun. Anything extra planar is a lot of fun until Banishment comes around. And uh, another really good example are, uh, we're going to pick on D&D &D 5e again, Undead. Because you have two classes, the Cleric and the Paladin, that are specifically designed to destroy undead in, like, one attack. Paladin's Divine Smite just gets a free D8 whenever they apply it to undead creatures. Clerics can just wade into an army of undead, use Destroy Undead, I think, twice a day, and just murder everything within 30 feet of them. It's uh, really difficult to balance if you don't take into account who your players are and what their abilities are. So if you're doing something like a Genesis, specifically we'll use Star Wars Age of Rebellion, if you don't have like a melee fighter archetype, maybe don't throw a bunch of melee combatants at your party because they're going to decimate them. You have to consider what your players are good at and challenge their strengths rather than exploit their weaknesses when you're balancing your combat. I think one of the, the big things there is to kind of find find enemies or creatures or even people socially that that interact with your player strengths in interesting ways. For example, I was running a combat where I was like, "Hey, it's a cave bear. Pretty straight up fight. It's a it's a tanky kind of monster that hits like a truck. 
But the Druid has the option to cast Animal Friendship, and you know what? They did. It was an opportunity. Like, it could have been a pretty easy fight. They would have stomped it because of action economy. But you have some options. Yeah, and then your party befriends the fire elemental that's supposed to be the most powerful one in your dungeon, and then he just follows them around. You have to come up with a name, and then everybody calls him John Fire. And <laughs> Yep. <sighs> that happened to a spectator that I had put in my first ever dungeon. I <laughs> forgot that the bard was a player. <laughs> And so he just befriended the spectator and was like, no, I'm totally a friend of the wizard who put you here in this dungeon. Totally a friend of his. And like rolled a nat 20 on his uh, persuasion or something like that. I, I will say, if you feel like maybe the monsters or the players could do with a little bit more challenge, one of my favorite things that I like to do is I like to make the environment more interesting. This was especially true with the final boss that I had done for my first ever campaign because I wanted him to be challenging so I had the original character sheet for one of the upper ranks of demons I don't remember which one it is off the top of my head right now but I took one of the upper ranking ones and modified him to be almost like the wizard equivalent of that race Oh, because there were not a whole bunch of spell casters in the group by the time that some players had ducked out and some came in and all of that. So there weren't like a ton of spell casters, but there were some spell casters. So I just had the final boss be like as balanced as possible between spell casting and combat. But the environment that it took place in took place in a homebrewed world that I created called the Weird Wastes. And in the Weird Wastes, mm -hmm. at this juncture where the final boss counter happened, it was at a cliffside, and in the cliffside was a gigantic eyeball. And wherever that eyeball looked, it cast a cone of magic negation. So anywhere that the eyeball looked, any spell, fifth level or lower, did not take effect. That got the spell casters who were in my party to be like, okay, so anywhere that this eyeball looked, the spellcasters had to be like, okay, I got to maneuver around this, but I also need to be a certain distance away from the big bad end game in order to have some of these spells actually land. And it, anytime that you can get the players to strategize a bit more of where they need to be in relation to your environment, I think is a plus and adds more challenge if the enemies turn out to not be that big of a deal. I think uh, I think one of the famous examples of that, uh, if you guys have ever read the article about Tucker's Kobolds, uh, where literally, uh, yes, it was, a, I wanna say it was in Dragon Magazine at one point, but uh, basically this guy uh, builds a dungeon full of kobolds and they're like fifth or seventh level players or something at that point. And they're like, oh, it's a joke, it's a bunch of kobolds. But it's their home turf, so they've built traps, they've got, you know, back doors and vents to scurry through. So, like, you're fighting them on their home turf, why wouldn't they have an edge on you? If they prepared for you to come, like, they're going to make use of the terrain while you've got to figure it out. That, I mean, to give a real-world example, I guess, that's exactly why the United States military had such issues in the Vietnam conflict. Because... You know, not to make any political statements whatsoever. Um, basically, the United States just bombed the shit out of Vietnam and said, hey, we won. And then they got boots on the ground and were like, 
oh, wait, no, we didn't, because mm-hmm. they were just trying to brute force their way against, you know, an army that had every advantage on them because they understood the terrain and had prepared. So, I mean, draw inspiration from real-world sources. Why did the United States military not just stomp the significantly smaller and less equipped Viet Cong? Because the Viet Cong had the terrain advantage and knowledge to conquer that, right? How does the element of surprise play into it? Uh, you know, how does overwhelming force versus, you know, intelligent minority stack up against one another? And all of those are going to be balanced a little bit differently when you're putting your combats together. It's uh, it's the same question of how a 10-year-old kid beats uh, Joe Pesci and Daniel Stern in his own home. <laughs> well, going back to... to we'll, we'll jump back to the Vietnam thing real quick. So we're talking about playing uh, playing with a combat where I play my monsters be, as if they don't know they're in a game. They don't know their game because mm-hmm. to them the world is real. This is a real world to them. They're fighting for their lives against your players. So an intelligent person when you're losing a fight you would run. You're not going to, to stick around. You're not going to, to let yourself just get downed because oh the cleric's got a heal waiting for me. It's like, no, what if the cleric goes down and you don't know he went down? Mm-hmm. And now you're lost. But what if you get captured? I, I use the real world example of if we were if we were in a live fire combat situation in the Middle East. We're using we're using that as example. If we can, if we're allowed to use this as example. Yes. Um, yeah. So yeah. if if you and a group of other soldiers are in the Middle East and a territory that you are sure that you can you can find an advantage. There's places to, to take cover. You know that your enemy is somewhere here. You're there to locate the enemy. But the enemy locates you first. Now you're in a firefight. You know, between however many seconds it takes for that firefight to go on, now you're on the losing side. And now you have a choice. You can continue to fight until you die and get no result. Or you can flee and take this information with you. You might escape with your lives. It's it's really hard to fathom that when you're playing a character, it's not like a video game. Most players, I, I don't know if you guys have had players at your tables that think of it as a video game. Like, ah, oh, well, then I'll just get a hot restart. You know, I'll just load a, a previous save. It's like, you, you might not get that. <laughs> your characters die, and now what? Mm-hmm. It, is it the end of the campaign? You don't know. It's how the DM wants to run it. But playing your monster smart is not necessarily a bad thing like kobolds you know you're in their turf they have traps they have a lair that that they work with you know and a neat thing that 5e has has tossed out is lair actions for other monsters mm-hmm. cool things that happen you know the dragon gets a turn but then he gets a lair action like uh, a black dragon's got a pool of acid in the center of this this cave and on his on lair action, it bubbles up and deals acid damage to players who are standing too close to it. So now the players have to think, well, I can't stand too close to the acid because it's going to it's going to hurt me next turn. So now they have to move tactically away. And they might have to move closer to the dragon. Or vice versa. Something is going to affect them. Your environment, your monsters, you know, sometimes your players are... are the, the biggest targets to, to other players. Like, oh, I'm the cleric, I have to get to that player next turn or he's going to die. 
So you have to put yourself in harm's way. You play yourself smart. Play your monsters smart. They don't know they're in a game. I think the the monsters kind of hitting and fading kind of lends itself to, to maybe one of my points. So we've talked a little bit about turf, but I think tactical advantage can really play a big part in a combat. So, I mean, if you have, you know, your one soldier or kobold or whoever that hit and, hit and ran, they have at least seen your players in combat. And so they've seen what they can do. So they may know a spell that your wizard likes to cast or your fighter's go-to move. Oh, yeah, he's going to do this, and then he's going to run up and hit you and try to trip you. So, like, there's no reason if they're... They don't even have to be super intelligent. Like, I would even say, like, an int score of, like, four is going to be like, oh, yeah, I don't want to do... I don't want him to do that again. A dog flinches when you make, like, you're going to hit at it. Like, why would... No, they're not going to stand there and take it. And so it's one of those things where you can, mm-hmm. you know, even if you're a low intelligence creature, you, you can have some strategy. I mean, if you're whatever intelligence Strahd von Zarevich is, you've been watching the party since square one, and, and you know everything about them. But play to your your strengths. Like you're not not just going to lay lay down for the the group the second time around. Also, if I may add, not every encounter that you put in front of the players is an encounter that your players will engage with. I'm thinking about. Uh, Reno, there was one time, I think you were DMing for this particular session, but I was playing Ollie. The team and I had uh, finished, I think it was, we finished a combat scenario and we settled down for camp for the night and most of us were just tired. And then we all of a sudden hear very, very large footsteps coming up on the horizon. And we came up with a strategy of how to hide we were not going to engage with this thing, whatever it was. So we came up with a strategy and we hid. And turns out we narrowly dodged a cyclops. Yeah, I remember that. So you guys were in the woods. Yeah, you guys were in the woods and we rolled for a random encounter for the night. And obviously you you throw that in front of your players. Now, a murder hobo player, I don't know everyone's opinion on murder hobos. I have very strict opinions on murder hobos. But, uh... I use uh, a d12 for my random encounters, and 11, it's a normal encounter, a 12, it's a difficult one, and we rolled a 12, and I pulled up my list of stuff that's in the area, I'm like, okay, here's a Cyclops, and it could have easily wrecked the party, but like Kelsey said, they chose not to engage with it, alright, let's hide, where can we hide, what can we do, and with players being tapped on spells, low on health, no option to get a full long rest, now they're in a a very dangerous situation. We went camping, and now it's a bad time. That was a fun encounter, though, but be prepared for those sort of things. Again, DMs, totally cool. If you throw something like that at your players, it's worth seeing how the players react. Even even to that point, like, I don't know what your general motivation was for the Cyclops in the area, but, like, not every creature is invested in just absolutely wrecking the party. So even if the combat goes completely sideways and the Cyclops tears through the party, like, he's not really invested in their death. Like, they may take some lumps for it, like, may lose some gear or something, but, like, not everybody's invested in just murdering the party. It's, uh... I don't think we can really go through uh, this episode without referencing uh, the monsters know what they're doing. I think the guy has a lot of... Uh, uh, Keith has some really interesting uh, feedback in, like, how to run groups of enemies together. Uh, I don't really use the flanking mm-hmm. special rules, so some of his co- uh, comments are kind of wasted on me. 
but uh, I think he has some really valid points. Like, hey, look, this creature's not meant to be a frontline fighter. Don't just run up and smack the front line. Like, play play to their advantages. I've not actually checked out this yeah, this book yet, but I've been wanting to. It's it's definitely an interesting read for sure. And he throws some some creatures at you that I, I kind of like hadn't really given a second glance. Like, oh well, why would I use them when I could use some other like you know standard like half orc or just the human like veterans and all that stuff. But it's like actually these guys are kind of interesting and and make for a better encounter if you play them like flying creatures for example a lot of flying creatures would hit and fade or use range attacks like they can fly and players ostensibly at low levels can't like why wouldn't they use that advantage Mm -hmm. oh i i gotta i gotta give a shout out to you reno for one thing one of my favorite dungeons that you ever put together was the series of tunnels that was only occupied by gelatinous cubes and rust monsters. Oh, the the cleaner dungeon. The cleaner dungeon. So uh, the dungeon itself was only inhabited, like Kelsey said, uh, by gelatinous cubes and rust monsters. So gelatinous cubes ate all of the organic matter and all of the metal matter that was uh, in the dungeon was taken over by the rust monsters. So when the players entered it, it was like a medically clean like area. The walls are like pristine there's like no fungus or anything because the cubes would move through and the the rust monsters had learned to avoid the cubes and they would only come in through like little holes in the wall to like pick off whatever little things they could eat and it was the players hadn't completed the dungeon they, they had never really completed it they'd only gone so far because they're like well you know uh, players had already lost weapons Kelsey had gone out of the way, or Ollie had gone out of out of their way to uh, to rescue a player that we really didn't want to rescue. We didn't want to rescue the player, but it, Ollie's like, "Nope, I gotta be the good person here," and yanked them out of the cube before it destroyed them because they didn't see the cube. They walked into the room and they ran right into it. Yep. And but yeah, the 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 dungeon ecology that I had thought about is like. How do I get these two monsters to work together? And sometimes I'll just open the monster manual and pick two monsters and see how how I can make them mesh. And sometimes that's a balance in and of itself. Like, all right, so the party's expecting to fight a red dragon, but what do you do when the red dragon has made friends with a frost giant? And now you've got Oof. you've got all this like backstory Inter- that you can interplay. build. Interplay. Yeah, but like I, I was like, oh, what what monsters just devour things? So I threw it all together, and everyone was like, nope, screw that dungeon. We're not going back to that one. It's too dangerous. Player me really wanted to explore it. Ollie was like, no, 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 no. (laughs) It's always interesting to see how uh, different groups of monsters will interact, whether it's positively, like your your rust monsters and your gelatinous cubes, or on the flip side of that, like you have two different clans that are clashing or something like that, where... On the surface, it's an extremely difficult fight because the party couldn't possibly down all of those creatures. But at the end of the day, they're not cooperating. Like, yeah, if the party seems to be the biggest threat, both of them might gang up. But at the end of the day, like, they don't know the party. They don't really care. Like, they're busy fighting out whatever conflict they have. And I think this brings up an interesting topic of ambiance or, or like, the tone of your scene 
and how that's going to affect your encounter. Because your player's mental state is going to greatly affect the way that they make decisions. So if they're scared, or if they're angry, or if they're happy, they're going to interact with the same situation very differently. Mm -hmm. If they're scared, they're going to be cautious, on edge, and jumpy. Uh, so if you throw a friendly encounter at them, they're going to be incredibly suspicious of it. If they're angry, then they're just going to be trampling through but ready for a fight. So maybe something sneaky would be the best way to open up that combat because they're not going to be paying attention to it. If they're happy, they're not going to be paying attention, but they're also going to be a lot more trusting. So maybe throw a devious social encounter their way or whatever it is. Try to engage your players before the... Well, for like big encounters or like story important encounters, try to prepare them for it so they react to it in a way that makes it a little bit more meaningful. For example, the last session of D&D that I ran, the players completed this puzzle. They got transported into the realm of dreams, which is a constantly shifting mirror of our own reality one of the players got separated and he went to this village that was endless and copy-pasted on top of one another and it was just his nightmare of feeling completely lost without direction whereas the other players who were still in the group individually faced their own greatest fears as characters so they all interacted with this world in a different way and by the time they came back together and went into their next encounter it all became you know, can we trust what we're actually seeing? Is this even real? Should we interact with this or ignore it? And it just brought a new layer of depth to what was ultimately a simple encounter. So ambiance and kind of setting your players up for the interaction at hand can go a long way towards making the encounter feel like more than it is. Kind of meeting them where they're at. Yeah. yeah. Or, you know, just kind of you know, you have to prime a lawnmower before you pull the string, otherwise it's not going to start. Mm -hmm. So if you just throw encounters at them without any ambiance or, you know, tone setting, it's not going to have as much impact in most situations. For sure. That's something that happened uh, one of the last times we ran 5e. I had a player who was like, yeah, I'm an activist and I'm like, you know, actively campaigning for, like, non-human races to, like, get better treatment. Because I, I made it very clear. I was like, look, like, we're not... I'm not interested in, like, half-orc savages or any of that stuff. Like, everybody's gotten... Like, they may not get an even footing in society, but, like, everybody has an even shot at good, evil, whatever. Nobody, like... There's no predispositions. Mm -hmm. And he was like, yeah, like, that's what my yeah. character's gonna do. And he's a... He's an activist. And the first combat that they get, a gnoll and some hyenas are, like, snooping around trying to figure out what they're doing, stomping through their territory. And we, we immediately down a hyena. And I was like, aren't you, uh... Oh, man, crap! I, like, he totally had... He's gotten sunk in because they were getting snuck up on. And he was like, oh, man, I totally blew it. Internalized biases. Mm -hmm. um, Kelsey and Joe, I know Reno and I have gone through our major points did you guys have anything else that you wanted to add to the conversation in specific well i talked a bit about environments and how you can incorporate them into encounters as far as social encounters i am a very firm believer in the yes and rule it could be just my background in improv uh where i can fairly comfortably come up with a character on the spot but i do enjoy the social encounter aspects of things 
I don't usually go in with a game plan in terms of like social encounters. I might have like a couple of bullet points. If my players are listening to this, do not listen to this part. <laughs> but um, la, 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 la. I'm not one of your players. But. <laughs> but yeah, when it comes to like the social interactions and how who they interact with and all of that, that's usually just like an on the spot improv thing that I do. The only thing that I like plan is the monster and environment encounters. Joe, what were you going to say? Oh, I was going to ask before we move on to my point. So do you have like an agenda like for whatever PC you're dealing with or NPC, sorry, uh, that you're dealing with? It's like, hey, like this is what they would want to come out of this with if they're going to meet somebody in the middle. Uh, it depends on the situation because sometimes the players are more looking for either a shop cle- shopkeep to buy stuff from or they're looking for uh, somebody to give them directions somewhere, or they're trying to find somebody that's part of their backstory. But every once in a while, um, there will be like an NPC that they need to talk to for, I hesitate to say progressing the plot, but basically they need to talk to an NPC to like progress the plot. But even then, those social encounters can go whichever direction. There's not usually a set path that I take with those particular social encounters. It's more the monsters that I plan out because of number crunching and things like that. I think one of the really interesting opportunities is being able to try to play up an encounter that statistically is like lower on, on the paper, but because they've seen the players fight, they know their tricks, right? So if your wizard is really fond of fireball or burning hands, like, oh, okay, well, I'm gonna slick the floor with oil, so feel free to light your fires away because it's gonna come right back to you. Like, some some of the really small stuff where it's just like, hey, like, they're prepared for you. Uh, I don't don't encourage every fight having some kind of, like, metagamey like oh hey well i know the paladin does this first round and the wizard always uses this spell like save those for birthdays and christmases but like those can make a very like simple fight really kind of sing at the end of the day not every encounter needs to be some grand epic if anything those should be the exception rather than the rule and your mundane encounters should make those ones have more gravity by comparison Mm -hmm. right so a random cyclops encounter in the woods when your party's about to go to sleep might be a cool encounter, but it doesn't necessarily need to be this like big session-defining event. It can just be an encounter, right? Or a random bandit raid can just be that, a random bandit raid. It doesn't need to be, oh, these bandits also tie into the grander plot in some minute way that the players are never going to know about. Mm. They could just be a random bandit party. So don't be afraid to just throw in random encounters to highlight those encounters that you've gone out of your way to balance specifically for your players' strengths. Also, not every player will have the same highlight of the session. Tying mm-hmm. back to the episode where we talked about stars and wishes, it can it's a very real possibility that one person's highlight is another person's, like, not-so-highlight. Mm-hmm. Uh, but also, what can stand out as a highlight for one person may be something that, like, another player is like, ah, I mean, that was funny, but the highlight for me was this. One session that I was a player character in, I was playing 
Vernon the half-orc paladin. I love playing my half-orcs. And everybody else in my party was like a chaotic neutral and I am the only lawful good. And so a goblin pops up on the horizon and Vernon was just, gotta kill it. It is my duty. And just chucks his uh, javelin at it. And all of the other players were like, what'd you do that for? And they spent the next 20 to 30 minutes just talking to the goblin and being like, hey, I want to apologize for my friend's behavior. I'm so sorry about that. And they like exchanged like rock hard potatoes as a gesture of friendship. It was just, yeah, for, for them, that was the highlight. But for me, that was like, the highlight for me was something that happened later on in the session. Mm-hmm. It was just a scenario that I was like, well, that's what Vernon would do. Uh, one thing that stuck out to me is like even in combats, whether it's really easy or really difficult, like alternate win conditions can be a can be a really big source of engagement because it may be that the party knows that they're gonna they're gonna get beat by this lich because they're at a at a super low level. They may need to escape. They may need to activate a device that's gonna teleport them away. Like look for options to make the fight interesting. That's not just like. I take this action figure and this action figure here and smack them together, and whoever's head doesn't fly off first wins. When we talked about uh, balancing social encounters and looking at our players' strengths, I know we're probably going way back, but pulling it forward, um, I like to look at the players' intelligence scores. Look at your character's intelligence scores. Now, we talked about like metagaming. Like you, you probably have problems with players metagaming. Like, well, I think I would do this, and then blah blah blah. Well, they should do this. An intelligent character might think tactically. They might know their other players' strengths. Like, I know the cleric's got heals. I'm going to have you stand at the back because if that monster hits us with this, then you can do this. Using that, you kind of legalize the metagame of it. So now you've, yeah. you've allowed your player to have a strength that they didn't know that they had. Sometimes, though, in, say, social encounters, you've got a high-charisma character who... The player is not a talky person, mm-hmm. but they are playing a talky character. You can supplement that. It's like, well, because you know how to talk really well, or you have um, you have this natural charisma about you, people are opening up to you. And if it ties into something regarding another player's backstory or something, so now that player has that information, and maybe it's something that drives the plot forward, because if you sit at a... a table of players who let's face it we we have all had instances where we have probably not been the most social person at a table we've sat there awkward among strangers and it's like i don't want to stand out so i'm not going to say anything and then the dm's like trying to pull teeth use your player's strengths to every benefit that you can yeah use those stats or background to maybe abstract out um some options for them heck yeah yeah so let's go ahead let's narrow it down a little bit so we've had at-length discussions about encounter balancing, how to prepare for an encounter at the table and away from the table, and then how to incorporate your player's abilities versus your character's abilities into that encounter in a positive way. So let's narrow it down. What are three just one to two sentence pieces of advice that we can give folks about encounter balancing? For me, I would say challenge your players strengths instead of exploiting their weaknesses it's pretty much verbatim what i said earlier in the episode but attack them where they're at their best 
and that's going to make everything a lot more engaging for them because they can actually play into it with those strengths rather than suffer through their weaknesses i think uh my point uh if we had to sum everything up is like know the tools at your your disposal so not only do you need to know like what your players are up to the enemies that you may or may not throw at them or uh opponents in like social situations but you know what's the environment look like or what do they know about the players that they could turn to their advantage if that's the kind of encounter that you're running for me, I would I would recommend new DMs. Don't be afraid to use the environment to your advantage in a combat. So find unique and new ways to use the environment in whatever situation that you're in. Play to your strengths as a DM when it comes to social interactions with characters. If you're not much of an improv person, that's fine. I have played games with DMs who were not super into improv and were not super into doing character voices or anything like that, and we still had a great time. So just play to your strengths when it comes to the social encounter aspects of things. I guess if I were to sum up what I had brought up before, I think if I could encompass it all in one thing, just knowledge in general. Go to your table as a DM, as a player, with knowledge of what you intend to put in front of your players that night if you're a dm you know i'm going to have my players encounter this 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 and this or if they choose to encounter this 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 and this have that knowledge of what they can handle as a player if you're coming into it know what your character's strengths are and try to build off of that maybe communicate with your dm knowledge and communication two very key things you'll find that Many dungeon masters, game masters, will want to work with you because you're part of their world as much as they are going to fabricate their world around you if they do that. So knowing what you can do as a dungeon master, what your monsters do, knowing what you can do as a player, and knowing what your players can do as a dungeon master. Skills, abilities, anything like that. Wonderful. So rather than just leaving it at three, because that was all really good stuff, I went ahead and I put the list at four. So we've got challenge the player's strengths, know your tools, that's going to be your player's skills, abilities, and your enemy types, and play to your strengths. Use the environment rather than just throwing bodies at your players, and then communicate with your table mates to tailor the experience to the table. All agreed? Absolutely. Heck yeah. All right. Lovely. Well, I think we've had a very productive conversation about encounter building today. Thank you guys for talking with me. Thank you, Reno, for joining us. And where can we find you on the internet? You can find me on the internet. I am a semi-professional DM. Um, you can <laughs> you can find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle there is the OG Seiso Bancho. I don't have much on there yet, but I am building that up. Uh, I am also working on getting things set up through through a new facebook account but i can get that information to you guys if you want to link that later absolutely and just to get the spelling right that is og as in the letters og say so boncho b-a-n-c-h-o-e yes that is correct beautiful we will link it down below if you guys want to go ahead and follow reno on twitter and you should know us by now but in case you don't Follow us on Twitter at the fourth leg or email us at the fourth leg pod at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or feedback. We want to hear from you. We want you to interact. And next episode will release in two weeks. We look forward to you listening. Thanks a lot, guys. Thank Bye. you for joining. We'll see ya. See ya.
Thank you for listening to The Fourth Leg, a show all about giving new GMs a leg to stand on. You can find Kelsey at Duncan Theo on Twitter and at Kelsey, K-E-L-C-I-D-Crawford.com. You can find Joe at JCD0818. And you can find me, Hunter, at Skunkosaurus, S-K-U-N-K-O-S-O-U-R-O-U-S. To get in contact with us about the show or to leave us any questions, reach out to at the fourth leg on Twitter or email the fourth leg pod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you in two weeks. Now you got me wanting to make a monster encounter where, like, the monster that the players encounter is like, but I want to be friend. And then they like squeeze the players too hard and accidentally crush them to death. And it's like, oh no, I wanted to give hugs. No, Lenny. No, no.